When I was a young married college student many years ago at the University of Massachusetts, I was majoring in horticulture. And one of the courses that was required in my curriculum was entomology, the study of the biology of insects. And y'all, I love that course. I think I probably would have become an entomologist if I didn't love plants so much. In that course, we had to learn all the different orders of insects. We had to learn their life cycles and how they interacted with other animals and specifically also with plants. And I remember one of the projects that we had in that class was to raise milkweed bugs. We got the eggs, we had a little, a little jar, we had to put the eggs on some cotton in a jar, bring them home, and I watched them. I watched the eggs hatch and then watched them pupate into their different instar stages until they became adult milkweed bugs and had to keep a journal. And I was totally over the moon about all of that. I think that's why I'm, I'm so excited about this second part of gardening to attract wildlife, because we're going to be focusing on pollinators. So welcome to a new episode of Logan's Garden Shop Podcast. I'm Bryce Lane, your host, and I'm really excited to be continuing uh, this series on gardening to attract wildlife. Now, the first thing you might want to do before we get started is go to the Logan Garden Shop uh, website. That's logantrd.com so you can find out about their hours of operation. They're always changing due to all the different regulations with, with regard to the pandemic. You can also find out about some of the, the, the events they've got. Many different things are, are, are on the website. So go there first and then come on out and shop. They're open for, for, uh, for business and, and you can start perhaps maybe selecting some plants that are pollinator friendly. So that's the topic today is pollinators and how we can in incorporate more pollinator-friendly plants into our garden. But as you probably know me by now, you know that oftentimes I don't start with how-to. I'm more interested in, in talking about why. Right now, gardening to attract pollinators is one of the largest trends in horticulture, and everybody seems to want to be doing it. But what's fascinating is oftentimes when I ask people, well, you're so interested in pollinators, why is that so important? They can't answer that question. They're not exactly sure about why it's so important that we, even in our local communities and even in our own backyard gardens, can really help, okay, by planting plants that facilitate and help out pollinators. So let's identify, let's establish why pollinator gardening is so important in today's world. Well, first of all, the bottom line is we can't live without them. Now, I know we hear that a lot about a lot of things. But pollinators are so important to all the food that we eat. Here's some statistics that may help you develop a better understanding. Right now, the United States Department of Agriculture has identified about 1,400 different species of crop plants that are grown worldwide. And these are plants that pr produce food for us to eat, oils, fats, all the different types of things that we need from, from those crops. And it's, it's noted that 80% of those plants, that's about 1,120 different species of crop plants, are pollinated by different types of animals. And specifically, many of them are pollinated by insects. And so that's a huge amount, all right? So then we go a little bit more local. There are about 150 different United States food crops that are worth about $10 billion a year that depend on pollinators in order for the crops to be produced, for the produce to actually produce, and specifically in crop plants and fruits, fruit trees and, and small fruits. Not only that, but half of the world's oils and fats that are produced by crops depend on pollinators as well. And so here you can see there's this huge dependence on pollinators uh, in order for us to get all the food that we need to eat worldwide and also within the country. Now, we know that there are um, quite a few uh, plants that are uh, pollinated by honeybees. And in the United States, about half of our crop plants are pollinated by honeybees. The other half of the crop plants are specifically pollinated by native bees. Those would be the bumblebees that we see and other bee species. Most wasps and hornets don't necessarily do a lot of pollinating. Many of them are attracted to the nectar in the flowers of plants and as a result do pollinate. But half of the pollination in our country for, for, for crop plants is dependent upon native Bees, and that, that's really important because there are uh, quite a few bee species that in in the, in North America alone that are at risk. In fact, I just read an article about um, six months ago in uh, the Wall Street Journal about a, a bumblebee species that just went extinct. And you say, "Wow, that's 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 horrible." And it is. It's horrible because once they go extinct, we can't get them back. 
All right, and there are about 4,000 species of wild bees in the United States alone. And we really have a responsibility to help maintain those species. So you say, okay, so we depend on pollinators, but then why do we need to be so concerned about them? Well, because their populations are, are reducing. They're, they're at risk. Many of them are, are, are reducing. It's not just about the honeybees. The colony disorder in honeybees is something that, that made headline news. Honeybee colonies and hives were, 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 were failing, and they really didn't know why. Um, turns out it, it, they're thinking it may have been a combination of things, um, not first and foremost pesticides, but a little mite that was attacking the honeybees and infecting, causing that. A, lot of, a, a little bit on pesticides as well, but a lot was unknown. That seems to have leveled out, but you know, honeybees, let's remember about the honeybee, it's not native in the United States. In North America, you know, honeybees are exotic. They're, they've, been, they've been imported from Europe. They're a Western European native. And so we, we, we bring them in here, we use them to help pollinate our crop plants. It's not uncommon where if you're driving down the highway in the spring and early summer, you'll see a flatbed truck with countless beehives on there that are moving from one farm to another, large operations to do um, to do pollination. But we're, not only are we seeing decreases in the honeybee population, but we're seeing decreases in the bird population and also in different species of native pollinators as well. Butterflies, moths, that type of thing. The monarch butterfly population is plummeting and uh, there are a number of reasons. We'll talk about that. So why all the reductions? And I think we need to identify the reasons why, because once we see that there are reductions and we understand why, then we can actually be more proactive about what we can do to help these pollinators. First and foremost, the greatest cause of reductions of populations of pollinators across the land is habitat loss. What's happening is due to urbanization, because our population is increasing and we're tending to expand our urban areas, there are a lot of areas that uh, native um, pollinator populations are being limited, and as a result, their life cycles are being interrupted and their populations are going down. So that's one concern that is creating the reduction. Second would be an increase in invasive plant species. Now, invasive, invasive plants don't actually attack the pollinators. What they do is they um, compete for space in habitats where the native plants that support the pollinators are. And so as a result, it reduces the native plant species that support the pollinators. So we need to be really careful about um, invasive plant species. The third has to do with pesticides. It's interesting, it's a distant third. Pesticide use is always going to be something that is going to put certain pollinators at risk. But when it comes down to pesticide usage, it's a matter of identifying their, the safety levels, how toxic they are, and to what insects, but also proper application. And as, as home gardeners, if we're gonna use pesticides, if we use pesticides, it becomes very important that we understand how to use them relative to the life cycles of the insects or the pollinators that we're concerned about. Case in point, seven garden spray. It's a spray you use on crops, including food crops, uh, to uh, control chewing insects. It's not a very toxic material. It's quite safe to use. However, if bees come in contact with the spray, it kills them instantly. And so that's why on the label of the, the seven garden spray or dust, it says, please apply early in the morning before the insect population has become more active when it's cooler. The warmer it gets, the more the bees and the butterflies all get out and the greater risk there is if you're spraying. So always, always remember to read the label and, and take great care as to matching up when the best time to use the material is versus when the insects are, uh, are most active. I don't particularly like to use pesticides in my own garden, not because I'm afraid of them or I think they're incredibly dangerous. Usually the danger comes from misuse by us humans that don't read the label or don't care about what the regulations are. I just would rather spend money on plants. And so I select plants that are, are more resistant to um, insects and diseases where I don't have to spray as much. And I'll avoid those plants that are highly susceptible. Not only that, as we talked about creating a balanced ecosystem, we'll talk about this right now, the more balanced an ecosystem you create, the more you have good connection amongst the animals in your ecology of your, your garden, and therefore you're going to attract beneficial insects that don't need to be 
killed by pesticides. Beneficial insects are insects that will actually reduce the population of detrimental insects. So if I see ladybug beetles out of my garden, I'm thrilled because I know that they're there because there are some aphid populations. Ladybug beetles love aphids. Praying mantis, the same type of thing. Now, I don't go out and buy ladybug beetles. If I bring them to my garden and release them from a box that I bought on, on Amazon, there's nothing that's going to um, that I can do to keep those ladybug beetles in my prop on my property. They're going to go to where the insects are that they they eat, and the ladybug beetle adults they eat they eat detrimental insects, but so do the teenage larvae. And we'll be talking about life cycles of insects as we go along. So anyway, reduce those pesticides, and and you do it for a number of reasons to and be more careful if you do have to use them. And then the other reduction had to do, and I already mentioned this, with uh, different pests that attack the actual insects, like the, the mite that attacked the honeybee. Those are all things that have contributed to the reductions of populations in, um, in not only in the United States, but across the world. And so what, what we can do as home gardeners is we're thinking globally, but we're acting locally. And what we can do is literally create and help pollinators uh, increase their life cycle, increase their populations, and therefore support the crop plants that we purchase by creating little islands, little havens for these pollinators to come and get their nectar and their, their, their pollen. It's not so much that we're providing pollen so the crop plants can grow. It's pro we're providing food that helps facilitate the life cycles of the pollinators. And so by creating quarters, of, of pollinate, pollinator gardens. This allows the butterflies, the bees, the birds, all an ability to be able to stay well-fed and keep their populations up. Now, if you live in an apartment complex, please understand, or a, a condo, someplace where you don't actually have ground that you can plant plants into, no worries. Plant a small garden of pollinator plants on your, on your balcony or your patio. And even that's going to attract pollinators and you'll be able to do that. Well, in addition to this, I mean, who, who doesn't want a garden that's filled with butterflies and moths flitting around and even bees? I know many of you are, have a little bit of a bee averse, you know, aversion where you're a little bit concerned about bees and wasps. I'm here to tell you that um, all those bees and, and wasps and all those different insects that I find in my garden at 4 o'clock in the afternoon in a hot summer day are way more interested in the flowers and the nectar that those flowers are providing those insects than they are in me. And, yeah, it's, it's not uncommon for me to take my, my, my grandchildren out in the garden and uh, we'll go and look at the different kinds of bees. Some of them are just fascinating to look at. And so I'm sharing my passion for entomology with my grandkids and they're learning that, uh, you know, bees are not to be feared. Those, those animals are not to be feared. Oh yeah, I know, yellow jackets and hornets will attack you if you disturb them. I've taught my grandkids not to go grabbing these bumblebees that are on the plant. Now, I've been out pruning before and there's bumblebees that I didn't see and I grabbed the stem to prune it and in grabbing it the bee was in my hand it stung me but that was that was you know happenstance that happened because the bee was threatened uh, it's not something that the bumblebees come after me and you know what if you don't like bees in your garden then uh, understand that you're going to be limited with the kinds of pollinator uh, plants you're going to be able to produce because most plants that attract butterflies guess what they also attract bees so that's just kind of the nature nature of the game there. But um, nonetheless, I think you can see between personal edification and a, and a beautiful garden with, with all these insects and, uh, and other wildlife, uh, we also can be good citizens in our local communities and even state and, and, and country by creating these, um, these havens, these Edens, if you will, for pollinators. So there's my, there's my argument for why I think pollinator gardens are so important. And you know, there's some great support out there. You, you go to Logan's and if you told them you wanted to create um, an area in your garden or, or you wanted to incorporate more pollinator-friendly plants, the folks at Logan's would be more than happy to recommend specific plants. I'm also going to come up with some recommendations here in a few minutes, a list of plants that, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about, you, you want to get the names, get a piece of paper out and be ready for that when we get to that point. So when it comes to attracting pollinators, there are some... There are some basic principles that um, I'd like to share with you. And one of, the, one of the great websites that I'd like to recommend at this point um, is a website entitled millionpollinatorgardens.org. That's it, just millionpollinatorgardens.org. And this is an organization that has started, this is a website that has started a challenge. It's called the Million 
pollinator challenge. And this, this, this started a number of years ago. This, this organization is trying to get over a million people in the United States to register their garden as pollinator friendly. So you go to the website, they have a list of criteria, you check them off, and if you, you, know, if you check off enough of the criteria, then your garden can be registered as a pollinator friendly garden. I'm very proud to say that my garden is part of the, the gardens that are on the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge. I'm not sure whether they've hit a million yet. Last time I checked, maybe six, eight months ago, they were at 750, 800,000 gardens. So I'd encourage you to take a look. Maybe your garden's already qualified to be part of the Million Pollinator Challenge. But when you go to that website, they give a list of, uh, of criteria for the gardens. And I'd like to share that with you because these are things that help us understand how we can make our garden more pollinator friendly. Okay, first one is use nectar and pollen producing plants. Well, that seems like an obvious one, but there are certain plants that um, we can select, and I'll share some with you, that produce nectar that attract more insects or more pollinators. And remember, pollinators are not necessarily going after the, the, the pollen, although some do. Most of them are actually going after the nectar, and pollination occurs as, as a secondary, as a collateral damage, if you will. Uh, many bees will go in to get pollen, and in, the, in that process, because of their little hairy bodies, they pick up pollen, and then when they go to another plant, they're pollinating. Now, there are some bees that actually feed their young pollen, and they're, so not only are they collecting nectar to produce food, honeybees specifically honey, they use honey to feed the adult bees in the colony, and they also collect pollen to feed the, the larvae, to feed the, the, the baby bees, if you will, and, and so there's a double there. So there's the first one is select plants that are noted for high nectar and high pollen production. Second, always provide water source. And of course, this is, this is also consistent with attracting birds. To somehow incorporate water into the garden, whether it be through bird baths, small trays, or, or small water elements that we, we frequently change that water, keep it fresh uh, through water elements like fountains or uh, urns that, that bubble water through. There are lots of different ways to incorporate water in the garden. The more water that you have in your garden, the more, uh, the more wildlife you're going to attract. Nothing more exciting to, than to see a group of, uh, of uh, dragonflies hovering over a pool or over a body of water. Uh, if you have water in your garden, you're going to get dragonflies. And dragonflies are a great insect. They're beneficial. They'll go after uh, mosquitoes and other small insects, uh, but they're, they're definitely a a positive, and oh gosh, they've got all different kinds of patterns and colors on their bodies. It's really, you know, to try to in encourage um, uh, dragonflies is, is fantastic. The third one is to put these plants in sunny, protected areas, okay? Think about where you're going to be putting your pollinator-friendly plants. Make sure they get plenty of sun. Most of them require sunny locations because they produce a lot of flowers. There are many pollinator-friendly plants that are semi-sunny or partially sunny or partially shady tolerant. You just need to do your homework, learn your plants, learn your insects. Then you also want to um, use plants that are large uh, pollinator targets that are native because, like I said before, native plants uh, support native animals in that area. But don't be, don't be afraid to do a mass planting, to do uh, three or four of the same, same cultivar in an area. It creates a beautiful color effect, but also becomes a target area for your pollinators. I remember I was at the uh, Elizabethan Gardens down in Manio, and they, had had a, they did a huge mass planting of a yellow lantana called New, a new Gold. I think it was New Gold Lantana. Huge, huge mass planting of New Gold Lantana. And the yellow swallowtail butterflies, this was the middle of the summer, just were completely covering it and they were flitting around and so the combinations of the yellow of the wings of the butterfly and the flowers were absolutely uh, uh, amazing but that 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 creates targets and, and insects are all often looking for targets they want to have something where they see things and they're attracted to it targets of native and non-invasive non-native plants okay don't be afraid to use exotic plants exotic plants are plants that are non-natives they come from somewhere else um, just do your homework on those plants and make sure you're not incorporating a, uh, an invasive uh, non-native. That's, that's really important. The next concept that they've identified as a, a, a plus for a pollinator garden is to try to um, get continuous bloom from, from early spring all the way through late fall. To try to incorporate plants that are going to be in flower as you move along through the season. So your garden doesn't lay fallow with 
no flowers for you know three or four weeks during a period of time during the growing season because then your pollinators are not going to have things that they'll be able to go to. And then the last criteria they've used for their list is that you would either eliminate or minimize the use of pesticides. You'd use the ones you might need to use, use them correctly at the right times of the day, or perhaps eliminate. I've, I've pretty much already you know, talked with you all about that. So that's, that's really uh, important as well. And so if you go through this and you think about creating a garden, and, and see, I'm not a big fan of of uh, saying everyone should create a pollinator garden. And so people walk into my yard and they, I say, come over here, I'm going to show you my pollinator garden. What I've tried to do is use pollinator-friendly plants throughout my garden. And so that, that creates a, a, a more of a larger-based island. I only have a quarter acre. However, I'm able to you know, service a lot of pollinators by having plants throughout that area. So my whole garden is pollinator-friendly, not... I have a pollinator garden within my, my property. That becomes, you know, that's, that's a very important point, um, you know, certainly I'd like to make. The, the other thing, y'all, if you, if you might live in an apartment or a, a condo or a high-rise and you've got a small area you can garden in, let me, let me encourage you to consider perhaps a community garden. Community gardening is a wonderful uh, way to get your gardening fixed. It's a great way to uh, promote pollinators and support them. Uh, there are lots of different organizations that have uh, uh, community gardens. The other, the other um, cool thing when it comes to Logan's is, you know, they do plant a row for the hungry, and a community garden is a great place where, uh, by producing um, edible plants, you can donate much of that produce, extra produce, to plant a row for the hungry. Make site at logantrd.com and uh, read up all about um, plant a row for the hungry. So think about that. You're not only providing food for the needy, but you're also providing uh, support for the pollinators that are in, in, in turn uh, pollinating uh, plants for food for the needy. So it's a, it's a double whammy there, and, uh, and that's a, an, another great way to, to support on a local basis. So we create, in essence, we're creating these corridors for pollinators. I am very proud of the North Carolina Department of Transportation. Their wildflower program along the highways has been a program that's been in place since the early 1980s when a professor at NC State University in the Department of Horticultural Science, a man by the name of Walt Scraw, of all things a weed scientist, came up with the idea with North Carolina DOT to uh, create wildflower plantings along the roadsides. And of course, you know, our North Carolina um, highways have become the envy of the country because of the beautiful landscaping that's done along the roadsides. Well, um, about two years ago, I'm happy to say that um, NCDOT actually revised their plant list for those roadside plantings of perennials and, and annuals to be more pollinator friendly, to, to have more plants that supported pollinators. And so there's a great, um, great example of how uh, a state organization is moving towards supporting um, pollinators as well. And that, that's, that's really exciting. So uh, let's, let's uh, get into talking a little bit more about uh, specific plants that are going to, to, to support pollinators. There, there are countless lists online that you can go to to get to, to identify plants that, that support pollinators. My only concern is there seems to be, and it's actually better today than it was even four or five years ago, is that we tend to focus almost too much on the adult pollinators, the, the butterflies or the moths, the adult versions of those, of those insects. Uh, it's actually equally as important to understand their life cycles so that we can support the, the other stages. All right, so let's, let's focus in on, on butterflies specifically. Butterflies and moths, okay, Lepidoptera. See, I even remember that from my, my college class. I'm so proud of myself. But the, 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 the butterflies and moths are a unique group of insects that, go th that have three basic life stages, eggs, larval, those would be the caterpillars, and then the adults. All right, let's talk about the adults. The adults have two jobs. One, mate, and two, eat. All right? What a life. They get to, uh, they get to they eat nectar, and uh, that's all for the purpose of mating to lay eggs. So once they mate, they lay their eggs on host plants, okay? Different, oftentimes different plants than the ones they feed off of. They'll lay those eggs, and then the eggs hatch into the larval stage. Now, the larval stage is the caterpillar stage. Now, a caterpillar's job is really uh, pretty myopic, eat, eat, 
eat some more, grow in size and, and stature. All right. I, I liken the larval stage of butterflies and moths to teenagers. Okay, what do teenagers do? They eat. All they want to do is eat, and they eat, and they eat some more. And so if we don't provide the food for the larval stages of butterflies and moths in our gardens, then we're interrupting that life cycle. And I guarantee you, no matter how many high nectar plants you have in your garden, you're not going to get the same population of butterflies and moths in your garden unless you support the larval stages because they'll be less involved in laying eggs in and around your garden. Now, to that end, keep in mind there are a lot of natural plants that support the larval stages. Think about this, white oak, Quercus alba. Now, here's a native tree in North Carolina, uh, not often sold, but if you look hard enough, you can find it. But certainly, if you have white oaks in your garden, do everything you can to keep them healthy. The research shows that white oak alone supports 500, more than 500 different species of butterflies and moths. Isn't that fascinating? Either it's providing protection for the adults, but moreover, providing food for the larval stages and places for the adults to lay their eggs. Over 500 different species of butterflies and moths. That's huge. So let's, let's remember, okay, so other trees. Tulip poplar, there's another native tree in North Carolina. Native maples as well. Ashes and willows. These are all trees that's, that, that are uh, big support players when it comes to the life cycles of moths and butterflies. So keep, keep that in mind as you are managing the landscape in and around your home, especially with existing trees that you might want to have cut down, or uh, if you're buying a piece of property, the trees you might want to negotiate to keep on there because they play a huge role in supporting butterflies, moths, and their larval stages. Okay, so, so that's, 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 that's one aspect of it. Now let's, let's focus in on plants that you should be buying. If you're going to try to support pollinators, you should be buying to incorporate into your own home landscape to support the, the caterpillars. Okay, so we've, we've identified the life cycles. Let's look at, um, you know, swallowtail butterflies. So you've got yellow swallowtail, black swallowtail. Those are very common butterflies in, in North Carolina. Here are some of the, the, the best host plants. Fennel parsley, rue, rue is R-U-E, Queen Anne's lace. These are all plants that are in the carrot family. Not all of them, but many of them are in the carrot family, Queen Anne's lace and parsley, for instance, that are just feeding stations for the larval stages of these swallowtail butterflies. And so it becomes really important. I'm so excited. I have a fennel plant that, that overwintered. It's about two and a half feet tall and two feet wide right now. And I'm just waiting for the swallowtails to come in, lay eggs on that fennel. Last year, they took it to the, to the ground. They completely defoliated it. And I had over 25 uh, caterpillars on that fennel. It was fantastic. Keep in mind that these herb, herb, herbaceous plants, these herbs, you grow them in your garden, they are going to be the places where the adult butterflies are going to lay their eggs. Oh, keep in mind milkweed. Okay, that's Asclepius. Milkweed is the primary larval stage support for the monarch butterfly. So if you want to support monarchs, you want to get more monarchs in your area, be sure to plant um, Asclepius. And the, the Asclepius that um, I, I highly recommend is our native Asclepius. It's Asclepius tuberosa, the butterfly weed. There are a number of native Asclepius that you can plant, and the, the regular tuberosa is the one that, that, that is uh, most preferred by the monarchs. Uh, there is an annual Asclepius that's not native. It's Asclepius carasavica. There's a mouthful for you. That will work. The only problem with that is um, it, it has had gotten some bad press as far as being an annual that it might confuse the monarchs. Turns out that monarch butterfly population is decreased not so much by what we do or we don't do in our own gardens, but more so in the urbanization of some of the areas in Central America where these monarchs overwinter where they migrate in the wintertime, and that because of the deforestation of those native areas for them, their habitat has been so reduced that um, their, their numbers have gone way down. All we can do on our end is to help support the life cycles of the monarchs in this area. And the way we do that is we plant our native butterfly weed, our Asclepius. And, um, and not all, only that, but we also plant plants that the adults, high nectar plants the adults are going to enjoy. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that that as well here in a few minutes. So those are the those are the plants that we need to be incorporating. Hey, grow some parsley, use some for your salad, and let the butterfly larva 
uh, let the caterpillars eat some of the, the other material. Rue is a great uh, uh, bluish uh, green colored leaf, very aromatic that swallowtail butterflies absolutely enjoy, along with fennel. Fennel's your, 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 your old standby for, for your swallowtails and, and, and some of the other, um, the other butterflies. Oh, I've also got a little note here. Uh, there are some uh, great little butterflies called painted ladies that like aster and hollyhock, so get, get aster planted. And then um, some of the other uh, butterflies in, enjoy zinnia and verbena. So you know, many of the annual plants that we plant can also um, support the, uh, the uh, larval stages. Now, that's the good news. Here's the bad news. Uh, last year, like I told you, I had 20, 25 of these swallowtail butterflies on the on the fennel, took photographs of them. I'll be sure. I'll probably go ahead and post those on Facebook again when I when I see the eggs hatching. I'll post some photographs. Um, you can go to my Facebook page. You can you can friend me if you'd like, and uh, you'll you'll see the photographs um, that that I'll, I've taken and will be taking of the swallowtails. It was absolutely fantastic. I was you know doing the the dance of joy out in my garden because I had all these 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 caterpillars. I was thinking, man, I'm going to have so many adult butterflies. Uh, one day I had 25, the next day I had four. Where did they go? Well, I thought, well, some of them probably have pupated. And what I mean by that is when they get to be a certain size, they'll go find a little place to hide underneath a leaf, attach themselves and create a, a, a chrysalis, okay? You know, a little cocoon kind of thing, and then, in, and then they'll hatch into an adult um, in, in 10 days after that, somewhere around a week to 10 days after that. I thought maybe all of them had done that. Well, turns out, uh, my wife said there was a flock of birds that had came in, and she saw them just picking those those uh, caterpillars off like one after another. And I was I was incensed. I was like so frustrated. I had planted the the fennel. I had I'd watched these these youngsters grow into into big giant caterpillars that were getting ready to pupate, and then the birds came and ate them. Now, if you look at a lot of the the caterpillars, you'll see that their markings are. Somewhat ominous. If I was a bird, I might be a little bit scared to do it, but some of the birds have gotten smart. Um, guys, please understand, if you're going to do this, if you do it with your kids, there's, there's going to be um, fatalities. You're going to have collateral damage like this. And, uh, you know, I think right now maybe I should, you know, put on a recording of, you know, from Lion King, Circle of Life, because that's just part of, part of gardening is you're going you're gonna to have a balance there. Well, that's good news because that means you've got birds that are being supported by the insects and, and in the long run, it all balances out. But, but it, it oftentimes um, changes the level of our expectation and, and joy when it comes to having those insects. So, okay, so that's, that's the larval stages. We need to create gardens that support those larval stages so that when we get the adults, uh, then they're going to be looking for food to keep themselves alive so they can mate and lay eggs and also migrate depending on the insect. So let's look at some nectar plants um, for pollinators. You know, butterflies and moths and even bees. I mean, bees love nectar. They're collecting nectar and pollen for their own, for their own help. Let's look at some perennials and annuals that do really well for pollinators. And also we'll take a look at some shrubs that also support pollinators. We'll go real quick through these things so we can, we can move on from there. All right, so obviously I said milkweed. Um, Asclepius is a great... Uh, perennial plant for monarchs, uh, mar for monarch larvae, but guess what? The adults also absolutely enjoy the nectar that comes from the flowers. So incorporate native milkweeds into your garden and you will be doing a great service to the monarchs. The other plant that the monarchs really seem to be attracted to is cosmos. And there's one specific cosmos, it's an orange flowering one called cosmos sulfurious that um, they are particularly attracted to. Now, when it comes to Cosmos, y'all, you can, you can buy them in a couple of different ways. You could go right down to Logan's today and pick up Cosmos seeds. You can scrape the soil, distribute those seeds, and within five days, uh, this time of year in early May, those seeds will germinate and begin to grow. And you'll have flowers in, in, in a, a month and a half. Uh, you'll, you'll have a lot of flowers by, by early June to mid-June. That's what I did. I bought, I bought Cosmos seeds. I mixed them with zinnia seeds, and there's another great plant, not just for monarchs, but also for all kinds of butterflies and moths, not to mention the bees, and planted zinnia and Cosmos seeds out along the, the wall of my, my home. I have, a, I have a retaining wall outside my sunroom, 
planted them there and uh, because my wife and I like to cut flowers in the summertime and bring them in and zinnias and cosmos are great. But they also support all these butterflies, moths and bees. And they, they germinate very, quite quickly once the temperature starts to warm up. And even though we've had a beautiful spring, you and I both know that the further into May we go, the warmer it gets. And uh, those plants will germinate, they'll grow quickly, get lots of good flowers from them. Speaking of flowers, uh, a lot of pollinators like this type of a flower. It's called a composite. And a composite flower is really hundreds of flowers that have been pushed together to look like one flower. Cosmos is a composite flower. Zinnia is a composite flower. Marigolds are a composite flower. Uh, Black-eyed Susans, composite flower. Where the inside of the flower, the black eye part, those are where the fertile flowers are, where the seeds are going to are going to grow, and then the colorful flowers around the outside are all sterile flowers. And so that's the idea behind the composites, the purple cone flowers, the rubecchia. Guys, these are flowers. These are plants that. Uh, pollinators absolutely love because they can go and they can eat from more than one flower per unit. Okay, so I mentioned, what did I mention? Purple cone flower. And be sure to plant just the native purple cone flower. Lots of cultivars and varieties of purple cone flowers have similar attractive values for pollinators. Okay, Rubecchia, the black eyed Susans. There's all different types of black eyed Susans. There's Rubecchia herta, there's a prairie sun, an Indian summer, uh, Denver daisy. These are all varieties that you ought to look for when you go down to Logan's to, uh, to shop. Um, these are great composite flowers that are high, high, high on the level of attracting uh, and, and supporting pollinators. So we've got, uh, we've got the, the, the composites, zinnia I've mentioned as well as uh, the black-eyed Susans and uh, purple coneflowers. Okay, here are a few more. There's one called butterfly mint, hyssop, H-Y-S-S-O-P, uh, also known as um, agastache, A-G-A-S-T-A-C-H-E, agastache. Some of you may call it agastache. The, the hummingbird mints are uh, part of the mint family, and, and plants in the mint family attract lots of insects. Uh, the agastache comes in a lot of different colors, uh, it's somewhat aromatic, and the flowers are, um, are um, uh, insect magnets. One of my favorites is a lavender blue agastache called blue boa. Okay, blue boa, and, and mine's just already starting to flower right now. I'm, I'm thrilled with that. So there's another group of plants you need to look for when you go shopping. All right, the sages, all the salvias. Uh, not only the herbal sages, but the salvias with, with, with flower colors. Now remember, there are lots of salvias that are red that attract hummingbirds, but salvias are great because butterflies, like the hummingbird, have a big, long mouth part. They have something called a proboscis, and it's like a six-foot garden hose for you and me rolled up in front of your mouth, okay? And so the, the butterflies, when they feed, they unroll that proboscis, and they stick the end of it down into a flower. So they're often looking for tubular flowers, flowers that are trumpet-shaped or tubular, like a salvia. That's why they like the composites, because they can sit on the margin of the composite flower and then take their proboscis and dunk it into each one of the individual flowers to take up nectar. So that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why um, you know, the sages work so well. They also are very high in uh, nectar. Honeysuckle is another. There's one of your woody vines that, that uh, attracts a lot of butterflies and, and bees and insects, as well as the hummingbirds. All right, so if we move back to our, uh, you know, our butterflies, moths, and bees list, uh, let's see. After sages, I've got, oh, allium, the flowering onions. And one of, one of the best alliums that you can buy, it's a great perennial plant. It's allium millennium, and it's the millennium uh, onion. It only grows, it's not, a, not an edible onion, but it grows about um, 12 to 15 inches tall and produces small ball-shaped clusters of flowers that the bees absolutely go crazy over. Uh, so look for the Millennium Allium. Another group of perennials that no garden should be without when it comes to supporting pollinators is phlox. That's P-H-L-O-X. The phloxes, there's pink, there's lavender. One of my favorites is a white. It's a cultivar called David Phlox. Uh, it'll flower all summer long and attracts tons and tons of insects. Bees, uh, lots of different, um, different kinds of moths. One of my favorites is a little skipper moth that flits around. Great, great plant. Um, lantana. Lantana is a great um, annual slash perennial. The, because of the little balls of flowers, attracts lots of insects. 
and, uh, and, and butterflies specifically, so consider that as well. And then the mints. Let's just talk about the mints for a section. The mints, uh, there's one called Mountain Mint, by far the most uh, highly, uh, it has the greatest ability to attract the greatest diversity of insects. Not necessarily butterflies and moths, but bees, wasps, all different types of things. Four o'clock in the afternoon, you go out to your mountain mint and it's covered. It's just this party of insects out there. Pycnanthemum is the, the scientific name, but mountain mint would be the one. Now be careful with the mints, including mountain mint. Most of your mints are going to be a little bit enthusiastic when it comes to if you plant them in the ground. So if you've got a garden space, you're gonna plant mint. My recommendation is plant it in a container and that'll keep it under wraps. It'll keep it from spreading everywhere where you'll spend countless hours out trying to control it by pulling it up. So any of the mints that I grow, I just grow in containers. It's not a problem. Just uh, they're very, very tough plants. They tolerate drought and, and work out real well. But the mountain mint is definitely worth having in your location. Of course, like I mentioned, most all these plants enjoy a, a full sun location where they're going to get more than about five Oh, maybe five, six hours on average of direct sunlight. Be careful if you get down below four hours of direct sunlight. Some of these plants get a little bit leggy and maybe they don't flower as much. The other mint-related uh, plant that can be a little bit enthusiastic in the garden, but one that should be in every garden, is something called bee balm. B-E-E-B balm. B-A-L-M. And they have these large clusters of flowers, pink, reds, cream-colored white, light-colored pinks, lavenders, the bee bombs are, are, are fantastic. They're aromatic. And uh, the bumblebees absolutely go bonkers over these things. They'll get on a bee bomb and they'll sit there. In fact, I think the nectar in bee bomb has a, a bit of an anesthetizing quality when it, comes to, um, uh, when it comes to bumblebees. Invariably, if I go out in my garden early in the morning on a summer morning, I will see bumblebees laying on top of these bee bomb flowers, looking like they're sleeping off a night of partying. You know, they look like they've been literally, you know, hung over with this nectar from the bee balm. So they're highly attracted to it. They'll spend the night on the flower and then they'll drive home in the morning uh, when it's safe. So that's that that's kind of a cool thing to to, to watch. Uh, but be careful with the mints and bee balms because they are they do tend to be a little bit invasive. Uh, or enthusiastic, I should say. So keep them in containers. Interesting to note that um, the, some of the bee bomb species are indeed native. Uh, the other uh, late summer fall flowering plants that really support uh, pollinators include uh, solidago, which is your uh, goldenrod. And, and please, 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 please don't throw goldenrod under the bus and say, oh, solidago, that's the one that promotes hay fever in the fall. Solidago is not a contributor to allergies, and the reason we know this is because the pollen, solidago is insect pollinated, it's not wind pollinated. The pollen grains are way too large and way too heavy to, to travel through the wind and get into your, your nasal passages. Actually, solidago, the only reason solidago is on a list, can be on a list for aller, uh, being allergenic, is that it flowers in the fall about the same time something called ragweed flowers. And ragweed and solidago, oftentimes, because they're both native, can be found along roadsides and whatnot. So when we see goldenrod flowering, the, the ragweed's also flowering, and that, that pollen is, is so light, it's wind, that plant is wind-pollinated, creates a real big problem when it comes to allergies. So um, don't, don't be afraid to, to, to plant solidago. And the, the one variety came right out of North Carolina down east, uh, is uh, it was introduced by the North Carolina Botanic Garden is um, Solidago uh, rugosa um, fireworks and fireworks is a more compact plant it grows about two and a half three feet tall has yellow flowers that look like fi a fireworks display that you'd see at the Fourth of July so I highly recommend that one and they, there are a number of new varieties dwarf varieties of Solidago and then the the, the other summer late summer late summer uh, flowering plant is Joe pieweed. Another native plant for this region, large, large flower heads, kind of fuzzy flower heads that are somewhat pinkish that lots of pollinators enjoy. Joe pieweed will be careful with that one. It'll get quite large, somewhere between three and six feet tall. So if you are planting Joe pieweed in a, in a mixed border or in a bed, plant it toward the back so it won't, it won't um, cover up things in front of it. Um, and that's, an, that's another one there. So those are just a, you know, kind of a, a, a semi-comprehensive, not totally comprehensive list of many of the, the plants that um, support pollinators. 
Um, very quickly, we'll, we'll just kind of look at some of the shrubs. Y'all, we, we can't ignore the fact that there are a number of woody plants that support pollinators. I've already talked about some of our native trees that are incredibly important in supporting native caterpillars and butterfly and moth species. Well, there are a number of nectar-producing shrubs that flower that um, we oftentimes don't even think about uh, planting, and shrubs would include vines like honeysuckle. Our native honeysuckle, Lanicera sempervirens, is a honeysuckle vine that um, supports hummingbirds. It also supports many butterflies and, and, and other pollinators. It's not invasive. The Japanese honeysuckle is the invasive one that we'll find in the woods, but the native one is not invasive. It's certainly, it's native. It's, it's going to support those native animals. Well, here's some other shrubs that I highly recommend you including, not only for their ornamental benefit for, for our gardens, but also as uh, supporters of pollinators. It includes the, the hydrangeas. The hydrangeas are a group of shrubs that everyone should have in their garden. Oftentimes, they're slightly overlooked. Granted, the macrophylla, the pom-pom the types and the, the lace cap type, the Japanese, it's an Asian um, hydrangea, not at all invasive, is a, is a classic southern um, Central North Carolina, you know, North Carolina plant. And it, it does what it flowers. It has both sterile and fertile flowers. It attracts quite a few pollinators. But there are two other species that, um, actually three other species, two of which that are native, that I, I really recommend for our gardens. One is oak leaf hydrangea. The oak leaf hydrangea produces a large spike of white flowers, half of which are sterile, the other half are fertile that will attract all kinds of pollinator insects uh, it, once they start flowering. I have uh, oak leaf hydrangeas. Oh gosh, there must be, there are tens of cultivars, many of which that I have in my garden are flowering, just starting to flower now, and the insects are already all over them. So guys, please consider incorporating oak leaf hydrangea along with uh, the smooth hydrangea, hydrangea arborescens. There's one cultivar called Annabelle. It's a white flower. This is shade tolerant. Uh, the insects will come after it as well, as well as another species, we'll get right to it, is uh, the panicle hydrangea, hydrangea paniculata. That one absolutely tolerates full sun, and at 3.34 o'clock in the afternoon, you'll see this, just a, you know, a stadium full of, of pollinating insects, specifically bees and whatnot, on that, on those ice cream cone panicles. Uh, Corsifolia will take shade to partial sun. Here are a number of other shrubs you ought to look, look into and do, do some homework on. Spirea, it's a great mid-spring flowering plant that insects love. There, there are all different kinds of species of viburnum. All right, then there's Caryopteris. Uh, there's a, a small deciduous shrub that produces blue flowers. I think it's called Bluebeard is the common name, but look for Caryopteris. There are yellow uh, leaf cultivars and bluish green leaf cultivars. Um, oh my gosh, when those, when those flowers come out, the bees are all over it. Another plant called Dutzia. You've got Clethra, which is spice bush. Um, the, the pollinators love um, spice bush. Hypericum. We talked about beautyberry already in part one of attracting wildlife because it's great for the birds, calicarpa and wigilia. This, this is just a small list of many of the shrubs that produce very attractive flowers. For, for pollinators. So you can see between the native trees that we have and, and the, um, the sh native shrubs and, and perennials along with the uh, uh, self-contained exotic plants, you can, you can create a garden that is going to support, wholeheartedly support um, all different types of pollinators. And remember, when you're gardening to attract wildlife by creating multiple layers, by putting, incorporating water, by building your soil, you're going to create an ecosystem that is so well balanced that you'll, you'll attract other kinds of, of, of um, beneficial um, wildlife as well. You'll attract frogs, tree frogs, and other frogs, and, and they're going to eat insects. Frogs are, are great when it comes to taking care of some of those insects that we don't want around our garden. Spiders. Now, I know I'm saying spiders and snakes and some of you are freaking out. I talked about our black snake taking care of the voles and, and some of the my, field mice. But, you know, when it comes to spiders, guys, you got to do your homework. You got to look and see, okay, a, a standard garden spider is an ornamental feature in the garden in September where they're doing webs to attract insects and they're absolutely beautiful, black and yellow. They could care less about you as a human. They're not good. They're not poisonous. 
Right. You've got your brown recluse. You've got your a black widow. Learn about where they hide out. Most black widow spiders are going to be in people's crawl spaces, dark places where they're secluded. They're not going to be out in your garden. So do your homework on the, on the spiders. And guys, before you start killing caterpillars, figure out whether that caterpillar is a larval stage of another plant. Now, we'll finish with a question I know that is burning in, in y'all's minds. And that, that is, what about when we attract wildlife, what happens when the wildlife that comes in is undesirable? You know, squirrels, deer, rabbits, these all recommend, these all represent wildlife, you know, small animal wildlife that um, raise havoc in our garden. I just got an uh, email from a good friend that planted a brand new redbud called Rising Sun Redbud. They were all excited, tender leaves coming out. And she said in one night, the deer took it and cut it and, and grazed on it. So now that's only half of a Rising Sun Redbud. That's enough to make you pull your hair out in the garden. I absolutely, as cute as bunnies are, I hate rabbits because they're going to go and they'll completely, totally defoliate small plants that are tender and growing. And I, I just, I get all upset about that. Well, I really think that, that, that we need to consider learning about deer and rabbits and some of those detrimental animal um, uh, pests and, and figure out ways to, uh, to manage them. Notice I said manage and not control. And so I'm going to propose, I'll talk to the folks at Logan, maybe one of the upcoming podcasts. Um, I've got a whole, whole thing we can talk about is how to manage animal pests in the garden. Some, you know, some, animal, some animals in the garden are, are great. I had a, a, a family of foxes um, uh, take up residence in my neighbor, underneath my neighbor's uh, garden shed, and those foxes kept rabbits out of my garden for a whole garden season. That was wonderful. I wish I could have paid them to come back. So there are a number of different ways we can manage those animal pests that come in when we create well-balanced landscapes. And so we'll talk about those. Um, I think maybe we'll do a podcast. Uh, I've, got an, I've got an idea for a name. You know, I love you, dear, D-E-A-R, but not you, dear, D-E-E-R, um, creating a uh, deer-resistant or animal-resistant garden. And so be looking for that podcast. But moreover, think about how you can create a garden that's going to attract wildlife, not only for your own personal benefit, but as a way to balance the ecosystem, be sustainable, and also support pollinators and birds as well. So guys, thanks so much for paying attention and listening. Don't take it for granted. Don't forget to check out Logan's uh, website, logantrd.com, or go on down and, and shop for plants and maybe consider incorporating a few more plants that are going to support pollinators and birds. Y'all have a great day and I'll be looking for you, you know where, in the garden.